writing it sometimes is even more profound. Very few people can speak this way. And so the writing hits a place, a deeper place than I call it ordinary language would. Um, and there's the connection, your heart to this image, this metaphor, this work, this emotion that the artist was writing about. Hello, and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. Thank you for tuning in today. I am chatting with Neil Barrison. And Neil is a chaplain as well as a counselor and helps people be able to process their grief through poetry as well. So did I kind of say that? Did I say that okay? What do you think? Is that a good yes. and kind of like a good umbrella of what it is? That's <laughs> a fine do? thing. Um, poetry <laughs> is one one tool I use in my one work with tools. people, and it's an important tool for me. Perfect. Well, I, I'm happy you're here. And this is one of these um, calls in which we had some uh, scheduling situations. The one time, that one time that I had not put it in my calendar in the right slot and that I missed it. And we're finally here chatting. And funny enough, we were both in parallel universes. We were both in the recording room, but each of us in a different one that I had created. So, so now we're finally here. So I'm so grateful to you, um, for you and to you, uh, Neil, uh, for your patience in this process of creating this podcast. So thank you for being here. Of course. And the feelings mutual Kendra. Sure. Thank you. So, Neil, let's dive into this. So, des- describe then more of what it is you do, and then I want to then talk about how it is you ended up becoming what you do. Sure. I'm a counselor and an interfaith chaplain, Kendra, and I started about a year ago, a little less, um, a practice, a private practice, and my focus is grief, loss, and transition. And the other thing I do when I'm work-wise, when I'm not doing this work is I'm volunteering for a hospice, a hospice agency, and I'm making calls to folks who are bereaving uh, the loss of someone. Mm. Mm. Now, what led you into that journey of doing this uh, type of work, of working with people that are either in that um do you work with the people that are also about to transition themselves too in your process, like their own mortality, or do you mainly talk to people that are already grieving somebody that's passed away? Now I'm primarily working with people who are grieving the loss of someone. When I was a chaplain, I was working with people who were dying and who had died. So, mm-hmm. um, But now it's mostly around people post the death of a loved one. And as a chaplain, you were in the hospital setting? I was, I was. I worked in two different hospitals in Philadelphia, one in Philadelphia and one in 
in Delaware. Okay. Is that so? You are in Philadelphia, and you used to live in Delaware before. No, um, that's where I did a residency in chaplaincy. I've been in Philadelphia for a number of years now. So, what led you into is that? So, that was the first thing you did was chap being a chaplain first before you became a counselor, or were they both kind of simultaneous? It's it's kind of a twisting story. If you want, I'll I'll explain. I go it a little into bit. it. Please, here we go. please. That's, that's so, why we're here. <laughs> so I'm in my 60s. And when I was in my 20s, um, my goal was to be a, a family therapist. And so I entered a program and did a one year, or it was a two year, it was a two or three year program, um, master's program. And halfway through, I pulled myself out of the program. It wasn't right at the time. Um, there's a lot of circumstances around that that it's not, it's not really important to the story. Um, but, and at the time, I, I think there were other things going on that I wasn't aware of. Uh, cycle through uh, uh, a lot of nonprofit work, uh, working in schools, working with, uh, with communities of older adults on either healthy aging initiatives or initiatives in nursing homes in Pennsylvania. And I wind up at the end of a 20 year career with an organization, a lovely, lovely organization um, as a program manager with two different kinds of projects. Um, I ended up um, having an experience where uh, my niece, who is now a rabbi, was in her rabbinic training. And one of the requirements is an internship in some way. And she did a internship uh, essentially in chaplaincy uh, at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital here in Philadelphia. And at the end of that experience at a family gathering, she turned to me and she said, Neil, you'd be really good at this. Mm. A light bulb, very bright light bulb went off at that moment. And this, I, I started to talk to some chaplains. And I networked with some chaplains in the area. And I decided very soon after that um, that I wanted to start doing on really an encore career, go in a different direction. And I mm -hmm. um, studied and became a chaplain. Um, I So I kind of call myself like in the job that I was doing as a program manager, there was a lot of counseling opportunities. I don't mean formally, but informally. Mm -hmm. And because I, and I did end up getting a master's of education in school counseling. So it's not far from where I was, but, you know, chaplaincy has brought me back full circle uh, to this magnificent work of um, individual work, and I'm also doing some group work as well. Um, and it's, to me, I say it's a backdoor. It's the backdoor into something I started in my 20s. And I think now with with life behind me, when I say that, I mean with a lot of experience in life, both professionally and personally, in relationships and in other ways, um, I'm much more prepared psychically to do this work. And it's been it's really a home for me. This is my, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. There's no question. Mm. Now I'm curious in that twenties, cause you're saying kind of like going back, it's kind of like it just led you back to the beginning to something. So what was it that you were doing in your twenties that it kind of get led you back again to your core really? What was I doing in my twenties? Well, I mm -hmm. was, I was in and out of different kinds of jobs, um, just trying to make a living. I was in graduate school. 
um, getting that master's pulled out, did some odd things, just wanted to get away from it. The stress was enormous for me at the time. And mm -hmm. um, so I was playing in the sense I was doing a lot of playing in the middle between that first year of graduate school uh, when I took a year off. Um, I did a lot of playing, odd jobs and things that um, were relatively easy and not just not stressful and thinking about my future and what it meant and then decided to go back and get that master's uh, in school counseling. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I found it so uh, beautiful that it was your niece that recognized that there was something there that connected to who you are and that you'd be good at it. Um, so was it the type of relationship that you have, let's say, in your family? Was grief or uh, talking about death, was it something that was uh, common within your family unit that she would think that you'd be good in that particular role? That's interesting you say that. It's not that we really were a family that talked about grief easily. I think it was really that she knew me um, from fam from family gatherings, and she knew that I had sort of this intensity. I was always looking for kind of the sacred and the profound in day-to-day -day living in nature, in relationships, in communication. And I think she just observed that. I don't think it was because we did, you know, we talked about um, death. You know, we, we, our family had normal conversations. It wasn't we were extraordinary around this whole issue of mm -hmm. end of life. Um, I just think that she found something that resonated in me and uh and wanted to share that as sort of a and i thought i thought thought of it i think of it as just a love moment you know like mm. you'd be really good at this she turned really my life truly around. I, she, you. Like she literally you. exactly i'm seeing you and i'm seeing this work as fitting into who you are in a beautiful way little did she know that i would end up doing that and so i remind her probably once a year if not more it's because of you mm. honey it's because of you <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. That's sweet. Yeah. That is beautiful. Now, what are some of these ways that in which you help then people process their grief? You mentioned, you know, poetry is the one of the thing, one of the tools you use. What mm -hmm. are some of the other ways? And or if you want to talk a little further as to how you dive into poetry being one of these tools. Okay, so maybe I'll I'll do a little bit about the transition to poetry and then sort of the larger work around poetry and other okay. tools, okay? Perfect. So, great. So, um, I was talking to a colleague of my niece, the one who, the rabbi who said what she said at the end of that summer. What's her name? What's Rebecca, her name? Rebecca. Rebecca, okay. Rabbi Rebecca. <laughs> rabbi Rebecca, and they call her Beck, Becca, as Becca. for short. So, Rabbi Becca. Um. Becca was talking to me about a colleague who she really admired in her summer internship that she was working with her. This, this chaplaincy work, when we train, we train with groups of chaplains that are uh, interns together or residents together. And we learn, we do a lot of group work together and learn from each other. Um, and the woman sounded really interesting. And she said, why don't you call her? Because she was doing more, she, you know, obviously Becca was moving towards rabbinical training and being a rabbi, but this person was really interested in the, the work of, she was in a hospital spending lots of time there, even though she wasn't a formally trained 
a professional chaplain. She was really a volunteer, but had gone through all the training as if she wanted to be a professional chaplain. And we started, we had a conversation one day and actually had coffee and she showed me that she had been carrying a notebook. And I said, what's that for? She goes, you know, I'm not really great at remembering prayers. So I carry some of the ones that I'm closest to in this book so I can look at the book at times and not have to memorize. Um, and it's just, it's a comfort for me, like a blanket. She did. I don't think she used the word blanket, but I took it that way. And uh, I immediately had an image. Um, when my parents, and this is another story that I'll sort of weave in, but not go all the way there. My parents died five weeks apart in 2014, which clearly influenced me. Um, I was with them for many, for every day, the last nine months of their lives. Um, and that's another story. But um, that that experience was life-changing also. I began to th- began to percolate around the notion of working in this end of life area without a lot of detail. And I didn't have, I have a concrete plan of any sort. Anyway, talking to this, oh, I know what it was. So back to that story, I wrote a poem for each of them for their respective memorial services. And that experience of writing those poems and delivering them was very meaningful. And from that day on, and that was approximately, well, that would be in, February, March, April of 2000, March, March, right? Yeah, so it's an anniversary now. Um, Mm -hmm. I decided that um, I I started to read poetry like more than I'd ever had before. It was interesting to me, but not something that I was moved by in a big way where I was reading it all the time. I started reading it. And then after I had this conversation with this colleague of Becca's, I, re- I thought to myself, why don't I just collect poems that really resonate with me, that I think patients and their families in a hospital setting might find some, I want to say comfort in, but I also want to say some peace maybe. Could they find something about the, the nature of living and this, this loss and all the things that people are going through as sort of universal? Also, the the notion of mystery and what connects us to each other beyond ourselves. I started to collect them and put them in a notebook. And within that first year, the internship in Philadelphia, in a hospital in Philadelphia, um, I had collected about 195 poems. Mm -hmm. And I had placed them, literally taped them into the notebook and carried that with me wherever I went. There were a few prayers in it, important prayers to me but 95% of it was poems. And I began to read poetry to patients and families, uh, end of life situations, maybe someone was about to have surgery, after surgery. And I began to rely on my intuition and my unconscious to choose a poem that I felt resonated with this person after hearing something of their story, after listening to how they spoke to me what was important to them, if I could get that from them, if they were willing to tell me. I I chose these poems. And, you know, reading poetry aloud to patients also slowed me down, uh, which was a lovely thing. When I read poetry, and if I'd love to read one to you today, um, you'll get a sense of, you know, the pace. And every word needs to be heard. So I talk 
almost this slowly so that people don't miss a word. I get to slow down and it may slow them down and it may offer them something. It may help them hear something that they wouldn't have otherwise heard about their own story, reflect on their own story, see an image or hear an image and be taken immediately to a body of water because water was in the poem. And um, often people would tell me stories after the poem, like, it, oh, that reminds me of a further opening into their life. So it was an opening. It was a way to bridge, connect two people. It was a way for me to say, I heard you. It was a way for me to underline mystery, connection, and things larger than ourselves. Um, so I got to part of your question about so I've been using poetry also in my private practice, and it's been lovely. Um, tools, I think the most important tools beyond poetry, and you don't need poetry to be successful in this work, I think, is really radical presence. <laughs> mm. And I, I like the word radical. I mean, it's, it just sounds big. And it sounds, in some ways, mysterious also. It's about radical attentiveness. It's trying to slow people down so that they can listen to their heart. Also listen to their heads, although they're used to that. <laughs> and find their soul. And when I say soul, without really going into a great definition of it, it's about themselves, but it's about the larger world again. Um, it might be about family. It might be about family history. It might be about, you know, Jung. And not that I'm an expert on Jung, talked about archetypes. But it's these these things that are beyond us that are, over, historical and profound. And when you can slow things down in this work and people give you permission to, and you have to ask for it, I think, as a, as a counselor, it allows people to get to, get to things um, that sometimes they, often they can't get to in their normal lives. Um, you help people reframe things. You help them realize that life is not easy. Even without this loss, life isn't easy. So what you're saying is, you're, this is a great battle. And you're one person in it. How can you, you know, this is, your grief is to be expected. There's no timetable. And we will work together until you feel like you're not suffering anymore. And I'll use that word. I don't use that word a lot with my patients, but it's an important word because you will suffer after you lose someone who's dear to you. And as you know, it's, it is a process. And there's no, there's not five steps to it being over. Agreed. It goes on forever. Agreed. It goes on forever. And if we as a culture could wake up, there are some great books out there. I'm sure you know some of them. Megan Devine has written one called, I think something like, um, but I think it's called something like, um, it's okay that you're not okay. Um, and it's a lovely book um, about how our culture, in part, it's about how our culture just freaks out around grief and, and doesn't, have the, pa doesn't and have the patience death, for it. Really. Yeah, so. I think that that is, yeah, what you said is, um, it's so beautiful, by the way, like I just, I love your, your voice is so soothing. You sh I don't know if you've written like meditation or recorded meditation um, 
uh, episodes or something, but oh, we haven't. It's kind of maybe me. you should. I, I haven't. Because it's very soothing. <laughs> it's very soothing. Maybe you and I will do that together as a project. <laughs> like yeah. you need another yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it could be just even the recording of the reading of the poems, you know, and just right. have them audio wise. The, um, what I was going to say is the aspect of being able to, oh, and I lost my train of thought. Um, oh yeah. That, so in order to be comfortable talking about grief, we have to first be comfortable talking about death. And that's one of the things I think that has to shift in our society, right? Is more mm-hmm. this um, taboo around the topic of death mm-hmm. and talking about it so that mm-hmm. we don't feel so awkward around people that are grieving the death of a loved one or, um, and so forth, because it's something we all are going to experience. Right. So, um, it's just, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, um, how that's going to shift. I think this year has really been one in which of course this topic of grief has come to the surface much more. Mm. Have you noticed that? That you he- like read more articles about it. Like they're talking about how we're in this gr- collective grief and grief as a, not just the aspect of death, but just grief in general about the loss of jobs or loss of freedom or so forth. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Loss, um, loss and transition just, Mm-hmm. constant loss, um, loss of friendships. I mean, then we're mm-hmm. stuck in houses with people and it is hard for people to be stuck in a house together without a lot of resources to fall back on a distraction from each other, which we need. Uh, we need our own space and our own time. Mm-hmm. And so when we're forced to be in spaces with people we love, it's it can get hard. So yeah, there's a lot of loss and a lot of lots of constant moving and changing and shifting, which is really what our life is. It's all about change. It is, is it about change. Absolutely. <laughs> it is about the moment the the moment we are <laughs> created, it starts to be about change. There's nothing stays the same. No no second in our process of creation do we stay the same right the moment we are in that growth process even in utero right every single day there is a change and then when we're born the same and when we but somehow we get this attachment of wanting to keep things the same like when people like oh i can't wait for things to go back to normal Mm -hmm. how they used to be like this Mm -hmm. attachment to the Mm -hmm. before or this attachment right it's like as if we just holding on uh, and we're just so uncomfortable with change and transition, but it's so part of our our being of who who we are as humans mm. as and um, as you, you this, sound like a Buddhist. <laughs> I do. Yes, you do. Did you know that? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I'm. A, I don't know if you know. Are you familiar with the Baha'i faith? Um, in your oh, practice, no, have not, you ever not, had... not deeply. I mean, I know some not prayers. Okay. I'm a Baha'i. Oh, so my, my, my practice is, beautiful. yeah, my religious practice is Baha'i, but, uh, but, um, but anyway, so, but I'm glad, but I'm open, of course, I, I believe in all religions and so, um, all major religions. So for mm-hmm. me to sound like a Buddhist doesn't, it, I Do- take doesn't it surprise as a compliment. You. No, no, yeah. I, no, but I've never heard it, but thank and it's you. really, <laughs> it's really the, you know, Bo- Buddhism is a, is not, I'm not an expert, please, but the notion that you know everything is changing um constantly and um the words are leaving my mouth and they're they're falling on your ears and then there's another word and then you're hearing something else i mean every little 
everything down to an atom is changing constantly. Absolutely changing. And we can't keep up now, with it. But in you, the, yeah, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. No, well, no, no, you said ahead. something no, about you said like we're we we culturally we're having we have a hard time with death, and we have, and it's mm. I'm not an historian around it, but it's clear to me. And the other thing that we're really uncomfortable with is we're uncomfortable with um, people when they cry often, mm. and um, a lot of this work is metaphorically hand holding, um, letting people grieve actively. Uh, be as emotional as they want to be, uh, feel like they have a safe, sacred, and peaceful space to do it in. And uh, my job, if I do it well, is to let them be in this space, um, let them feel what they need to feel, their heart, their soul, their bodies. And when they're ready to move on, and I mean that I don't even mean that permanently, but I just mean that like in this conversation now, when they're ready to not cry anymore, they move into something else. So it's um, really being attentive to um, your listening. You're listening, you're looking at someone's face and body. If you're in, in presence with them physically, you're listening for what the words they say and then what they're not saying. And you're looking for what's, what's here that may be missing from, that they may be missing. What, is, what, are, what are they being told by this? What, do they, what could they learn from it? And we're not, I'm not didactic. Oh, you could learn this from it. But I'm trying to look at that while they are looking at that as well. What, what is to be learned, if anything, about this loss? It's not going to fix it. It's not going to take away. It's just going to help us understand it more deeply. That's all. Mm -hmm. What do you think was your biggest learning of the loss of both your parents in those five-week period? What was your biggest um, gr yeah, uh, growth experience and learning from having lived through that? Hmm. That's a good question. I would say... I think having the capacity to visit with them every day um, and be a helpful source source of comfort for them in those last nine months. Um, not that I didn't. Not that they're difficult people. They're not. So it, it's not that I. But but the idea of I mean up until then I had never spent every day. Uh, other than when I was a child, right, with them, um, essentially just being with them, that's all. And so just the capacity to to be in the space with them, you know, every day for those last nine months, I think that that was uh, a wake-up call around purpose, you know, like, wow, you could do this with your parents, and it was satisfying how could you do could you do this with others that is so so beautiful Thank were, you. were they um were they ill were they both ill in that in that those nine months that you are mentioning is that why you were by their side yeah one was on hospice uh and he my dad carl went on hospice in september of 2013 maybe august september and he died in February 2014. And my mom was diagnosed um, 
in the summer of 2013, and she was a very serious, um, I want to say leukemia, but I don't think it was leukemia. My words are failing me now, maybe because of this a type of interview. Cancer, a type of cancer. Yeah, a type mm-hmm. of pretty okay. serious cancer, and mm-hmm. it affected her. Um, it was lymphoma, excuse me, I now remember. Mm-hmm. It was lymphoma, and there are different kinds of lymphoma, and it's complicated, but um, she thought it, she had the better one, if there is such a thing. Mm-hmm. And we're told we were told in September, October, that she went into remission. And then just as we heard that, you know, she started to go down. So, yes, they were both sick at the end. Um, um, she never went on hospice. Uh, it was really fast for her from October, and then she died in March of 2014. So October is when your dad was in hospice and mm-hmm. then died, and, and, and October is when she really found out how sick she was. Um, mm. So very, very close timing, both of these um, experiences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. What were some of the? Do you rem- recall, or or do you want to share uh, either one of the poems that you wrote for their memorial? Since that's, that's one so of the sweet ways of you. you started to. That's so share. sweet I don't of you. Know if you want to? Oh, <laughs> I don't have immediate access, and I think it okay. might take me a little too long to find. No it. problem. Which but one would be one you'd like to share? Because sure, you mentioned thank you you'd for want. Asking, um, I'm going to read this one that I I was looking through my notebook before our call and saying which ones resonate with me today in the spirit of what we're about to what we're doing on our conversation. Mm-hmm. And somehow this one jumped out at me. It's called Blessing and it's by Laurie Ann Guerrero. 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 There you go. G-U-E-R-R-E-R-O. Beautiful. Yeah, Guerrero. Thank, thank you. You said it beautifully. My mouth can't do that. Like the way it's yours okay. just it's did. It's the double R's. It's beautiful. the double R's. Guerrero. Blessing. Yeah. Blessing. Yeah. For my son, I have ignored you for a year. I have not dwelt on the soft fur of your arms or the way you rubbed my cheek with your own starry cheek. I splintered your hands away from my heart when you exited me. Of the men who have claimed my body, only you reflect my exact goodness, tragic as a cotton field ripe with bloom. But I have not dwelt on this either, not in one year or three. The way you break open your own throat, singing, sculpting, one world, another. Or kiss a girl in my kitchen, calling her love, my love. No, I have ignored you for a year or six, maybe not touching your feet or your shoulders to dab them dry, not humming in your ear as I did once, not holding your head against my chest in this sad night. I have not dwelt on other women who speak sweetly for you, laugh with you, or hold your head against their chests in the sad night. I have ignored you for a year or ten, finally severing the root, purging, drying out the heart. Go. That's it. Wow. Yeah, I was just, I would close my eyes. I was listening. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. I th- just so just to is, give you, like, I don't, I don't spend time analyzing, Kendra. 
Mm-hmm. I don't want people to try to extract some meaning. I want them to just let it fall on them like you did. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. But if you had to ask me about this, it's uh, it's about loss. Mm-hmm. And so it can resonate with anyone in the world, no matter what their loss is. Yeah, it's about, uh, like I felt that being that loss of those missed opportunities yes. and chances of connecting yes. with somebody else that we just kind of let it just fall through the cracks kind of in our day to day. And like it says there, like, you know, a year or 10 or, you know, all these times in which we've had that um, opportunity to connect with another. Mm. In this case, it's, you know, mother son type Mm -hmm. of relationship of what I hear, but the aspect of just connecting to another human being and Mm -hmm. just missing that chance. And, uh, I think that that is one of the things I, and I'm actually curious if you, as, as you work or when you work with chaplain as a chaplain with chaplain, I'm like, did you hear my, my, my with chaplain? No, you didn't work with chaplain. I missed it. I missed it. I completely (laughs) missed it. (laughs) It's As when you worked as a chaplain, Mm-hmm. What were some of the things that people would say they regret the most in their life? Do you re- remember? Yeah, I like, do. I do. But I, I want to I want to be careful at that. You know, when you're in a hospital setting and things are moving so fast and you're trying to slow mm-hmm. things down in these visits. Many people are very defended. Do you know what I mean by that? Defended. I mean, they're not able to talk about regret. Sometimes you don't get there when you do. So I, I want to make sure that the whoever's listening understands that not everybody is able to or capable or willing to talk about regret. Mm-hmm. But those who do, I think it would be about attentiveness. They might not use it, the word the way I just did, they, but it's about I, I wasn't loving enough paying attention mm-hmm. paying attention or loving enough i was busy moving too fast to notice mm. to love and i see that in my clients also today you know in the private practice mm-hmm. like the the one the ones that are grieving then do is that one of the things that then they share the most in terms of what they wish they would have done with the person that they've just lost, that they would have been more you know, present? That's a good question. I'm thinking about someone I'm working with, and a lot of what I'm saying is coloring this. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of what she's been talking about is, gosh, if I had known that he was going to die when he did, I would have been softer i would have been more curious i would have gone on errands with him when i said no you go by yourself i would have spent more time with him mm-hmm. that aspect of regret of the regret yeah there's regret there the, yeah and we're going to hold that we're going to hold that softly and in a sacred holy way and we're not going to change it we're not going to say oh well you had your own you know no we're going to just explore it see where mm-hmm. it goes yeah, because that's that's what you just said about not wanting to change it. That, that that's one of the things that I, I feel we were talking about how people have discomfort sitting with somebody that is, for example, crying and so mm-hmm. forth. Like we feel that we're in this culture of wanting to 
fix things and Mm -hmm. wanting to fix, you know, like if a child falls and cries, like we just want to make them feel better here, have those lollipops, stop crying, like, Mm -hmm. you know, fixing the emotions. Um, And with grief, that's not the case. Like in in general, like emotions, it's not about fixing. It's about just accepting that they're there. And like you said, sitting with them, kind of holding space for them. That's it. That's it. And then just, yeah. And either sometimes releasing them for that, you know, holding them that moment. Sometimes they release. You don't necessarily need them anymore for a little while. Then they come back. It's just the flow of emotions. That's right. And permitting yourself and being compassionate towards yourself, both curious and compassionate. And it's hard. This is a practice. This is, you know, we have habits we get into about, you know, we're angry with ourselves for this or that or the other thing. And when I see, if I see suffering, which is where someone is not being kind to themselves in terms of, oh my God, I'm going to cry now, like, and just start beating themselves up. Mm. Um, and just talk about that moment and how they might approach it. That's all. Like, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to try something different in terms of how you speak with yourself and how you hold yourself. How do you think that is? this applies also, this aspect of compassion and the, the work in terms of grief, just in other aspects of our life? Can you say that question again, Kendra? Yeah, maybe. I'm, let me see if I can rephrase it. Just sure. In, in this aspect of the emotions that come in terms of grief, like if we're hard on ourselves because of this emotion coming up and then just sitting with it, how can we apply this aspect of compassion in other aspects of our life? Hmm. It's a great question. I don't know how I great. I don't, I don't know, I know if I have a good answer. I know. I'm just. I don't. Sometimes I. Do, I know. I'm like. I, I feel bad sometimes for my guests because they don't know what's gonna come because. I no, just gonna, don't feel bad for us. No, say, don't feel bad for us. I just we, say we whatever's figure, coming in my head. I think it's great. We don't have an answer. We don't have an answer. It's no. just a conversation. It's, <laughs> so how do we use? use compassion in other places in our lives and within us yeah about us. compassion towards ourselves well, in other situations in our life so yeah we are our worst critics are we not mm-hmm. um we are also completely and positively and i mean positively in a different sense mm-hmm. focused on the story of ourselves right Mm. our greatest hits, the greatest hits of ourselves. And we ruminate situations that have passed about, oh, we could have done this, we could have done this, we could have done that. And then we also ruminate about the future. Oh, this is coming up, and I hope I want to be able to do this, and I want to be able to do this, and I hope I look really good. And and it is, um, we are hard on ourselves, and we we are in our life, you know, living this a life that is um, that is integrated with who we are and the expectations we have our, of ourselves. Probably the one of the most important things is is in every aspect of our lives when we are critical of ourselves, we hear the voice that we notice. Right, we notice that it's this critical voice, and that's the first step towards being able to do anything about it. And it is a compassionate step towards understanding oneself, but just noticing without 
trying not to go down the road of the the words we used against ourselves just notice and then in this work we will i will say to people what did you notice when da, 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 just right mm. and the person notices and this is the first time sometimes that someone's ever even asked them did you notice or what did you notice and they start to go there and once they start explaining it sometimes they fall upon information about themselves that they weren't even aware of. They say it, right? It's like when some a writer is writing and they say, it wasn't, I wasn't even writing. Like someone else was writing for me in that moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or when you are able to express something and realize, oh my God, this is about this. Those are insights that are often subconscious or unconscious that we by addressing it and noticing it we begin to then pull it out slowly gently right and there's an opening another opening towards self-knowledge awareness and being able to make changes in what we say to ourselves it's a it's huge it's huge work so mm -hmm. self-compassion self-awareness is one of the biggest thing, gifts we can give ourselves of how to do that kind of work. Yeah, the giving ourselves grace, right, to that aspect of I always hear, like, give yourself grace, like, in the hardship and whatever, like, how would you treat somebody else that was going through that same, that was going through that moment as well? Like, would you be telling them, you know, like, would you be as critical of that's somebody right. else that's experiencing this? <laughs> that's right. No, but somehow we happen to be very critical about ourselves and um yet we wouldn't treat somebody else that way no. so so yeah that having having grace now what are some other um tools that you use in your mm. in your own journey in your own grief journey that you've used as well as then with your clients sure um my grief journey i think poetry reading poetry to myself self has been um, in a sense, almost a spiritual practice. Um, it's opened my heart um, and tenderized it. And it is, um, it is, you know, this, this grief walk that we do is the grief, we're sitting with grief, and then we're, we're sitting with joy when it comes, and both can be true, and both can be held. So in a sense, these poems are about loss and grief, and um, they're about anxiety, they're about um, vision, they're about curiosity. All these things, when I read them, they open my heart and allow a lot of things into my heart. And again, I, I like the word tenderize. Um, I started using that recently, like they soften. Mm -hmm. They soften mm -hmm. and open the heart. So we it, it allows us to connect with others in deep ways and in a sense that's our consolation our consolation is our is the love and the connection we can make with people we care about so that's one thing yeah yeah i i yes i wanted when you're talking about how you talk about that connecting through poetry to these emotions 
it's it's really because somebody else that wrote it to then find this connection of the fact that somebody else felt the way you do in that moment mm-hmm. there's again that connective connectiveness of not feeling alone in the journey right and that mm-hmm. understanding somebody else comprehends a glimpse of what your emotions are mm-hmm. um when you're reading something, wow, like this is how it relates or resonates with me. And sometimes, like you said, there's not necessarily, um, and I have to be like an understanding of exactly what it means, but just like, how does it make you feel? Like, I Mm -hmm. feel that way even about dreams too. Like when Mm -hmm. you wake up from a dream, it's not like exactly like what it is that I dreamt, but more how it did it make me feel. And, um, instead of really trying to understand it, do you feel, do you feel that way about poetry that it's more about that connectiveness? Yes, I do. the right word? It is. is that the it, right word? Okay. it is. Connectedness is the perfect word. Um, mm-hmm. The writer had a vision. The writer had an image. The writer had uh, a matter that they put into words, and the words express something that sometimes normal, ordinary words of everyday life can't quite say. Mm. Writing it sometimes is even more profound. Very few people can speak this way. And so the writing hits a place, a deeper place than I call it ordinary language would. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's the connection, your heart to this image, this metaphor, this work, this emotion that the artist was writing about. Um, There was one particular poem that has been was very influential for me uh, when I started chaplaincy work. And the poem was called Love After Love. It's a very well, well-known well poem by Derek Walcott. I'd love to read it to you because I think that it's the kind of poem that I would read every week or two to myself for probably a year. That's how important it was to me. Would it be okay if I read it? Absolutely. Please Love do. After Love by Derek Walcott. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. It reminds me of how you were talking about people thinking of their past or also worrying about their future rather than that aspect of sit feast in on your life like of what Mm -hmm. is it now of the Mm -hmm. it feels like of the sitting with being present somehow that's how I feel uh, that last line sits with me yes and I think the larger theme here just like you said this is about reconciliation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's magnificent 
give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you. That was a line for me that resonated over and over again every time I read it. What do you, in your in your perspective, who do you think that to the stranger, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your do life? You, who has loved your you life all itself. your life, who all you your ignored life. Yeah. for another. I'm sorry, I should have, yeah. I wanted to give you the rest of that because I think it, there's more clues there. Yeah, oh <laughs> yeah, yeah, that loved you all your life. So who who do you feel the stranger, or what would you, or what or who would that stranger be? That would be me. Your, this is always uh -huh. about the self. A self, yeah. yeah. So that, yeah. like a, we are so like in the ego component that our own, self our real soul our our trueness is like lost within that it's like and that stranger is kind of like our our soul kind of like hello i'm here that's right <laughs> it's always been there and it's just uh -huh. a matter of finding it right yes and yes, some our... of us that's a lifelong process others may be more lucky lucky but i think it's um that process of rediscovering what you love about yourself. Not that I don't, I don't, I don't go for the self-love stuff, but that you like yourself, you're compassionate towards yourself, right? Mm -hmm. That there's parts of you that you've ignored for another, you know, mm -hmm. who knows mm -hmm. you by heart. So this other self, this soul that you talk about beautifully is, has known you, is no, is you, is mm -hmm. part of you, is almost the mirror image of yourself. And you've ignored it. Mm. You've ignored it. And it's complicated why you've ignored it, but you've ignored it. Mm. Or you've just not found it centering. You just not found it compelling. And I don't, I, I mean, I think, I, I don't know. I hope I'm not over dramatizing it. It was just. I love the you're poem. talking to the you're talking to a theater major by the way that's my major is theater and you know it's interesting that we're talking about poetry because at last night I was thinking of just like even just how um I was like doing this little short meditation and my my brother had said that one of the ways he meditates sometimes is like doing this chronological kind of way of taking back like to like when you're a kid and kind of just going backwards so I was trying to do that last night I don't meditate often um so I was doing that last night and thinking of my essence to some extent, like of what is, what did the child of me, who, who was, who have I always been and that journey. Right. And for me, like poetry was one of the things I did. Um, I was in the poetry festival and so forth and I would write poems or write songs or, but, um, and then I ended up studying theater. So I love that we're having this conversation today because it's been a long time since I've sat down and read uh poems and so uh and it's interesting the person i interviewed this morning too she that's how she shares on instagram as well as poems about her lo her, her loss and her she lost both her parents too oh my. um so it's very uh interesting that both of you today have been people that poetry has been one of them <laughs> so maybe that's an answer to me of having to reconnect with that as well so no please do the traumatize sorry that i did this tangent so the, you don't mean to over dramatize you said so now continue with your train of thought as i interrupted well, it for five no, minutes <laughs> i i think that if you think about this poem not about me but it was about me it's about any of us but mm -hmm. when you think about reading it to a client or a hospital patient or a family um you 
understand how it might, not always, but it might resonate. It might say something that you might not be able to say having just met them 30 minutes ago, right? Mm. It allows you to say things again that most times in our social you know, rules, right? implicit rules, is mm. that you might not be able to say, but you're able to say it in a poem. And then if they can, if they get something great, if they don't, that's okay. You know, mm. there'll be another chance, maybe, maybe not. But, it, you know, this is, guess, this is all intuitive guessing about, hmm, I've heard you. This is the poem I'm thinking about that might be useful for you. Useful, it sounds very, um, doesn't sound right, but it might be, it might move you, but it might connect with you in some small way. Not expecting it to change everything for you. It's not going to change everything. And it's a portal for um, conversation. Um, Absolutely. In that moment, it's a portal for conversation. It's, um, yeah, to be able to, like you said, if something that struck, that person in that moment that kind of um, rang true to them that then they can share. Because you're right, these cultural, um, I guess, yeah, rules, like you were kind of saying, that the aspect of not maybe allowing our intuition to maybe because uh, I, I break that rule a lot of times. I have to say, I'm sorry. Is it, all right? is it okay if I say kind of what I'm thinking right now? Let's come up. <laughs> Depends on what you say. <laughs> but you know, no, no, but I ask people that sometimes. I'm like, is it okay? Because, you know, sometimes you get these people call them downloads or this kind of like information that just kind of comes up and mm. you don't know if it's your own thoughts or if it's something that is maybe going to resonate with the person you're speaking. And, um, and when you have that empath component, it, sometimes ends up happening more than, um, than others. So Mm. I'm assuming that in your case and assumptions are not made good to do, but I am, (laughs) I am, uh, gathering by the information you've shared that you may end up having these kind of perceptions of, you know, and kind of, um, feelings when you're talking with a client, but, and that's, but you'd use the poem as your way of communicating what has kind of just tapped into you. Yes, uh, it's one small way to communicate something um, and um, maybe may act as a bridge, may act as a way mm-hmm. to um, connect us in a deeper way. And when I'm working with clients, they love it. It feels like a gift to them. It's often at the end of a session, but it feels like they're, they often close their eyes like you did and they mm-hmm. enjoy it as if they're being served a delicious cup of tea. Like, doesn't it say here something of eat? I'm actually had a feast, a feast, a feast on your life, like a feast. I had to pull it up so I could see the words as you were reading them. This is just so beautiful. Now share with the listeners. By the way, is there something else you'd like to share before you tell us also how people can find you? And I'll make sure to add your website on the show notes. You're kind. But is there something else you want to leave the listeners with as to either grief or tools or anything else that I've not asked? That's a great question. Um, I often, um, when I'm asked this, um, if I'm talking to somebody, I want to share, if I could, a a quote that has been, well, actually, I I know what I want to do. There's a great book out there for those who are in working in the grief space and even for people who are grieving. It's called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. 
It's making its rounds, people are loving it. It's by Francis Weller, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And Francis tells a story. I'm not sure if it's even in his book. doesn't matter because the book's great. Um, he um, was in San Francisco many, many years ago looking for um, to study and have a mentor. Um, and he walked into an office of somebody and started... And the first thing this gentleman said to him was, he pointed to a large rock on his desk. This is the therapist he wanted to, he was interviewing his potential mentor. The therapist pointed to a rock on his desk and he said, this is my clock. I operate on geologic speed. If you're going to work with the soul, you need to learn this rhythm. Because this is how the soul moves. And Francis said that that was the beginning of his education, his formal education. And he said that message that that gentleman said to him was more important than any books or any message he got his entire graduate school. So he's made it his life work to work on soul, on the soul. I have now a rock on my desk. And it reminds me that I have to slow down and I want to help my clients slow down, if not in their life, in the, in the time we're together. And um, that's a fantastic message. Um, we're moving too fast for ourselves and slowing down. Yes, it means that we may have to feel something that we don't want to, um, but ultimately it will be really much, much better for ourselves. Mm. I think this year has been one of those of uh. slowing down. <laughs> slowing down. And of us realizing really how much of the things we did and the busy work really were not that meaningful. <laughs> mm, <laughs> you know, mm, mm. in reality. So, um, so where people yeah. can reach me, thanks for asking. Yes. Uh, Kendra, the... Uh, there's really two primary places I think that make the most sense. I have a website. It's griefandpoetry.com. And I'm on Instagram at griefandpoetry. And I post maybe two or three times a week, often poetry, not always. Um, often poems that resonate with me and that I'll use in my work as well. Wonderful. Um, and thank you for thank asking. And I'll make sure to link those. Yeah. Yes, I'll link those at the in the show notes. And I just actually just found your because you connected with we connected was via to the website. So I I'm now following you on Instagram. Oh, so I um I can see all of your poems. Thank you so much for the beautiful. You know what? It's like I feel now so like Zen, as they say. You know, mm. like I just feel like this piece is just. Because again, it just even by I tend to be, blah, 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 you know, mm. so just, as you've mm. noticed already in our conversation, I didn't notice. Kendra, I didn't notice. <laughs> you Kendra. did not. I did, did not, not. I did not notice, Kendra. Where are you going with this? I, you assume I noticed. I didn't. You're just well, you bubbly. You're just bubbly. 
I'm, I tend to be like when somebody calls, like even just when I joined the the conversation here on the link, I was like, I'm mm. sorry, I was on the other, other, other. I don't even sometimes stop to say hello. Get oh. <laughs> straight. So, hey, so thank you for, for if, this. If there's for still moment. time, if there's still time, I'd love to read yes, your poem. And I, let's I'll say, it. let's do this. I'll say goodbye now. And we'll finish and then when, the poem. And when the poem's done, we'll just leave space for silence. Perfect. And then, but I want to say that thank you so much for your interest in me and my work and letting me talk about um, me and what I do. I appreciate it. Love it. And thank you for all you do and the, the space you hold for others as oh, well in their grief journey. Really so thank a, you. You're welcome. It's a joy. This is called The Lessons of Water by David Wagoner. When given a place to wait, it fills that that place. I'm going to start over. The lessons of water. When given a place to wait, it fills that place by taking the shape of what contains it, its upper surface poised and level, absorbing, accepting what it can as lightly or heavily as it does itself. If pressed down, it will offer back in all directions everything it was given. If chilled, it will shatter daylight and whiten, and whiten to stars, will harden and sharpen and turn unforeseeably dazzling. Neglected, it will disappear, being transformed and lifted into thin air. Or thrown away, it will gather with other water, which is all one water, and rise and fall, regather and go on rising and falling, the more quickly its path descends, and the more slowly as it wears that path away, to be left a while to stir for the moon, to wait for the wind to begin again. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, If you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.